Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stats. I'm Damian Garde, recording from Stats New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from Stats Worldwide Headquarters in Boston. And Rebecca Robbins is off today. It's Thursday, May 9th, and here's what's on the docket this week. A landmark verdict saw five pharmaceutical executives convicted of racketeering. Stats Ed Silverman joins us to explain whether it's a sign of things to come or a legal red herring. The FDA did something very odd this week involving a rare disease, an expensive drug, and a mom-and-pop company. We break down the strange case of Jacobus Pharmaceuticals. And lastly, there's a new CRISPR startup that is attempting to take the genome editing technology into the medical mainstream. Stat reporter Sharon Begley joins us to explain. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Medible. Medible provides the leading integrated cloud platform for data-driven and digitally-enabled clinical trials, allowing organizations to function as a connected team and bring effective therapies to patients faster. Learn more at Medible.com and get a demo today. That's www.medable.com. breaking news out of Boston federal court tonight. The founder of a drug company was just found guilty in a scheme to bribe doctors to prescribe a powerful opioid. It took a jury... Last week, five executives from Insys Therapeutics were convicted of running a racketeering scheme related to their deadly opioid painkiller. So there were a lot of interesting things about this trial, including the fact that it introduced the world to a deeply ill-advised cover of an ASAP Rocky song. That song was accompanied by a music video in which Insys sales reps rapped alongside a manager who was dressed as the opioid product that they were charged with selling, and it was played before a large company meeting meant to motivate other reps. But what really stood out was this. Most trials of pharmaceutical malfeasance ends with slaps on the wrist or convictions for people low on the totem pole. The Insys case ended with guilty verdicts for the top brass, including the company's founder and former CEO. So we wondered, is this a legal aberration or is the Insys story a sign of judicial change? Joining us to discuss is Stats Ed Silverman, Mr. Pharmalot himself. Ed, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So Ed, I know you've covered countless trials in which pharma companies are accused of breaking the law to boost their revenues. How do those things usually play out? Generally, not too many cases involving the pharmaceutical industry and its executives get to a very high-profile trial like this, or in many cases, any kind of trial. There are, of course, some interesting examples over the years. Merck was in court, but that was over the Vioxx painkiller. But often these are product liability cases where a patient brings a civil action against a company, a drug maker, saying there was harm caused by the medicine. And then the different laws may play out from there. This was a different sort of situation where the government brought criminal charges against INSYS. And we haven't really seen too many of those. There was a case 12 years ago against three former Purdue Pharma executives, and they were convicted of the OxyContin painkiller. But as an example, going in the other direction, three years ago, a former executive from a company called Warner Chilcott had been accused of paying kickbacks to doctors in order to induce them to boost prescriptions. 
and he was acquitted. So in this particular case, it's actually interesting that it got this far, that it had a really high profile, and that the executives were found guilty. So cut to last week, Ed, you know, this incest case, as you said, resulted in criminal convictions for the top executives, but it also had to do with opioid and the opioid crisis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that certainly makes things a little different. I think it reflects the fact that the federal government is taking a much harder view of the opioid crisis and the pharmaceutical industry's role in the opioid crisis. Going back a decade or so, almost every single big drug maker and many mid-sized drug makers paid fines for marketing infractions, specifically off-label use, marketing a drug for use not approved by the FDA. But you didn't see executives go on trial. You saw companies pay big fines and or reach big settlements. Here, it's a reflection of new effort to look at how drug companies are responsible or allegedly responsible for contributing to the opioid crisis. So the opioid crisis is really it's an opportunity for the federal government to say, we're taking a stand. And as part of that, the Justice Department is taking a harder look at the compliance departments inside all companies, but also drug companies. There was a memo issued last month by the Justice Department to its own prosecutors what to look for in compliance programs and how to detect where they're going astray and what to do about it. So that tells us that this full court press is going to get harder. So somewhat to that point, last week when the incest news broke, it seemed like there were two narratives that emerged. One was that this verdict was a watershed moment for holding corporations accountable. And the other was that maybe this was sort of a perfect storm that might not ever repeat itself. What do you think? Well, a little of both, at least certainly in terms of the pharmaceutical industry. It sent a message that executives might be held accountable, depending upon the circumstance. And certainly companies can be held accountable insofar as that it can hurt their ability to do business or move forward, at least to some extent. Or if nothing else, it causes reputational risk. The other point you made was this, the idea maybe it never repeats itself. It's not clear, at least in terms of opioids, because last month the feds indicted an executive and a former executive of the 10th largest wholesaler in the country, Rochester Distributor, for its role in failing to monitor opioid distribution. And so you have yet another potential courtroom drama that's being set up. And the feds are also going after a smaller company called Indivier that was selling an opioid addiction treatment. Focus there is really on the company, but there's nothing to say that individuals couldn't be caught up in that. Anything's possible right now. So Ed, if the sort of things that the INSYS executives were accused of doing didn't have to do with an opioid, do you think that we would see a criminal case or would it just be a civil case? I think it's really more to do with opioids. It doesn't mean the feds aren't interested in bad behavior by other companies or other drug makers that sell other kinds of medicines. But I do think that they're trying to make an example of the execs who sell or or distribute opioids right now. So, Ed, are there any cases in progress or on the way that might test the theory that this incest verdict was a milestone? Well, there is a case in federal court in Lower Manhattan scheduled to go to trial later this month concerning Novartis. There are no executives on trial, and it's not about opioids. 
But what's interesting and what I think is important to the pharmaceutical industry is that the company has been accused by the feds of inappropriately marketing medicines similar to the incest case insofar as that bribes are allegedly paid to doctors to write prescriptions. And also for one other interesting point, the company had gone through this sort of problem in the past and was operating under what was called or is called a corporate integrity agreement. They were caught doing this sort of inappropriate marketing and they signed an agreement saying we won't do it again. We're going to take certain steps to make sure we don't do it again. Lo and behold, the U.S. attorney in Manhattan at the time accused them of doing it again while they were still supposed to be under the auspices of that agreement. And so now they're going to trial unless they settle, which could still happen. But it's the sort of situation that reminds us that while the feds are making an example of those involved with the opioid crisis, there are other situations concerning other drugs where companies are going to be pursued. Do you think that the incest trial and the verdict is a deterrent against this kind of bad marketing and these illegal marketing schemes that pharma always seems to get caught up in? It certainly should be. Will it? It's not clear. I mean, as we've already noted, the opioid crisis is what's driving our conversation today. If you're a company that is not marketing opioids, you might think, I don't have the same problem, or I won't have the problem to the same degree if the feds come knocking and say, we don't think your marketing was legal. There is a difference, though, that you have a company like Insys, they're not a very big company. They don't sell lots of products. You take a large, big pharma company, they're selling multiple products. Many people take them. They're part of the healthcare fabric. So if you take out a top executive, if you take other steps that might inhibit their ability to serve federal healthcare programs, in the long run, there would be collateral damage. The feds could be harming patients unnecessarily. So while incest could be an example, I think that these qualifiers I mentioned are probably something that the C-suite is well aware of, certainly their legal advisors are well aware of, and allows them to thread the needle when they, they play the odds and think, okay, if we get in trouble, what can we expect? And maybe we're not like them. Maybe we're not like the incest of the world. Ed, thanks for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Earlier this week, the FDA approved a new drug to treat children with a rare neuromuscular disease. On its face, the FDA decision might have seemed rather ordinary. I mean, the FDA approves new drugs all the time. But this FDA decision to greenlight this particular medicine was almost totally unexpected and unusual in that it relied on some deft computer modeling and a liberal interpretation of the agency's own regulations. The approval also inserted the FDA almost directly into a roaring controversy over high drug prices. And it caused the stock price of one drug maker to plunge, cutting shares in half. All in, Damien, it was a crazy week at the FDA. That's true. So to rewind, late last year, a company called Catalyst Pharmaceuticals won FDA approval for a drug to treat the rare disease LEMS, and they decided to charge $375,000 a year for it. So the reason lots of people, including Senator Bernie Sanders, got mad about that is because many LEMS patients had been getting an almost identical drug for free from a family-owned company called Jacobus Pharmaceuticals. And the catalyst approval meant that Jacobus could no longer provide its treatment. 
And that brings us to Monday night, when the FDA approved the Jacobus drug for LEMS, indicating that it could be used for kids age 6 to 17. And that's where this story veers into some unexpected territory. Jacobus conducted a clinical trial in adult LEMS patients, not patients between 6 and 17. So in order to get to that approval, the FDA used what it called, quote, modeling and simulation, end quote, to determine how the Jacobus drug might work in children. But here's the key part. Now that the Jacobus drug is approved, doctors can prescribe it for any LEMS patient, regardless of age, which is why this FDA approval effectively shattered the catalyst monopoly. And that's exactly why Catalyst's share price, as you mentioned before, fell by nearly 50%. What's interesting is that Jacobus cannot market its drug to adult LEMS patients because that would be off-label marketing and the FDA polices that rather strongly. But the FDA seems to be kind of telegraphing that it wants doctors to prescribe the Jacobus drug off-label because that would basically deflate that controversial price that Catalyst set. So think about it this way, Damien. Before Monday night, if you were a LEMS patient in the United States... Your only choice was to take the Catalyst drug, and that drug costs $375,000 a year. Now, with this new approval, there's a choice. There are two drugs available on the market. Now, we don't know what Jacobus is going to charge for its drug, but the company's executives told our own Ed Silverman that they'll likely price it well below the Catalyst price. And this is kind of a fascinating twist in sort of the narrative of the FDA. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the dearly departed commissioner, used to make a lot of noise about expensive drugs and artificial monopolies and monopoly rents and just drug company shenanigans. But of course, the FDA itself does not have any kind of regulatory authority over how much drugs cost. So what he would often say is the means by which we can kind of pull a lever on that is by approving more therapies and increasing competition. And this is just a really extreme example of that where the FDA, you know, clearly went out of its way with computer modeling and other fancy shenanigans to inject competition into a market that had been monopolistic. That's right. And, you know, the FDA in their statement announcing this approval didn't say anything about the catalyst drug and about the $375,000 price tag and or about how Bernie Sanders and other people are been highly critical of catalyst. But in their actions, by being sort of ultimately flexible and sort of doing all this stuff to get the Jacobus drug onto the market, they're clearly sending a message that they wanted a second lens drug in the marketplace that essentially any doctor can prescribe now and ultimately bringing prices down. So in many ways, this was kind of a perfect storm with the Jacobus company providing it for free for so many years and et cetera. I know you've you've written about this extensively, but do you think this test case might serve as a deterrent for the sort of Martin Shkreli's or Catalyst Pharmaceuticals of the future, kind of looking to cut that corner and get a monopoly on an old treatment? I think it's it's important to note that this is somewhat of a special case, right? That the fact is that the drugs that we're talking about to treat LEMS, it's essentially an old chemical. It's been around for decades. It's super cheap. Like we said, Jacobus was giving it away for free or compounding pharmacies were making it for basically for basically pennies. But it wasn't officially FDA approved. And the outrage that occurred around Catalyst was that, you know, they're basically taking this old cheap drug. They ran a clinical trial. They got it approved and then jacked the price up to $375,000. So most situations for rare diseases, you know, there's a lot more work that goes into inventing the drug, developing it, running the clinical trials. And so there's probably a little bit more justification for those high prices in those cases than there is here. One thing that's interesting about this is, you know, Catalyst arguably took advantage of FDA policy by getting this approval that 
stopped Jacobus from being able to supply the drug. And then the FDA kind of fought fire with fire by taking advantage of a nuance in its own policy by approving it for a pediatric indication, right? Yeah, it's kind of like a loophole within a loophole. And, you know, that loophole was sort of getting around Catalyst exclusivity by essentially approving a drug for a pediatric indication where, you know, there are basically no kids, teenagers with limbs. I mean, I think even Jacobus says there's maybe like a handful, like literally a handful of kids that have limbs. But again, I think that may be something to watch in the future to see whether other drug makers try to use some sort of pediatric strategy to get drugs approved where they may otherwise be shut out of the market. The hype around CRISPR genome editing is tied to the fact that it could theoretically treat scores of medical conditions. But all of the near-term applications are focused on particularly rare and often fatal diseases. So there are a lot of scientific reasons for that, but also one big practical one. We still don't know how safe it is to edit human genomes. And so taking that risk makes the most sense for people with serious and otherwise untreatable conditions. But one company thinks CRISPR is ready for the medical mainstream. It's called Verve Therapeutics, and it wants to use genome editing to treat none other than heart disease, which is, of course, the number one killer and has been the target of drug development for as long as there's been drug development. Joining us to talk about this twist in the CRISPR story is our colleague Sharon Begley, who wrote about the launch of Verve earlier this week. Sharon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Sharon, for starters, what's the big idea behind Verve Therapeutics? So Verve Therapeutics is going to go after heart disease. It's going to start with a very, very rare form of that called familial hypercholesterolemia, but it has just very ambitious dreams, um, eventually going after other forms of heart disease and even just risk factors for heart disease. So Sharon, you've spent literally years talking to scientists about CRISPR's potential, and I've spent those years reading your work. And I feel like there's been this consensus that CRISPR would eventually move from the rare diseases that it is being tested on today to more prevalent ailments. But is Verve jumping the gun by going after something as prevalent, as complicated as heart disease right now? Well, it's certainly ambitious. On the other hand, they have a lot of smart people involved here, starting with, say, Kathy Rayson, who is giving up. He's resigning his academic appointments to become CEO of Verve, which, as you know, is very, very unusual for a scientific founder. So Verve, you know, being very smart about this, says that its first target will be indeed a rare disease. It's called familial hypercholesterolemia. And these are the people who have to have their blood washed out every couple of weeks, something that costs thousands of dollars times 26 times a year. So that really does add up. Verve's hope is that by offering a one-and-done treatment, its CRISPR-based approach will save money for the healthcare system and, of course, be a lot easier on these patients because apheresis, as it's called, having your blood washed out, is painful. It can have complications, including bleeding. So they think that by knocking that one off first, they will have an entry into other forms of heart disease where, of course, the patient population will be much larger. So other than all the scientific challenges that we're discussing here, what might be the practical barriers of using CRISPR to treat heart disease? You know, for people with just ordinary heart disease, including high levels of blood lipids, triglycerides, cholesterol, from the vast majority of them, it's really easy to take a pill 
once a day. The pills cost pennies, statins, because they're mostly all generic now. So that's going to be a huge barrier to entry. A couple of cardiologists I spoke to outside of Verve, and I asked them, you know, do you think that this will find a market among either doctors or patients? They, quite frankly, expressed skepticism. Yes, there might be some people who want to go in for this treatment, which will probably be an injection into the liver and be done with it for the rest of their lives. But, you know, for millions of other people, they are quite content just taking their statin. And Dr. Catherine, he goes by SEC. You know, this is kind of his nickname. He's kind of a legendary cardiologist, academic cardiologist, right? So what was the reaction when people heard that, you know, he was leaving academia to become the CEO of a startup? So a lot of the chatter, at least on Twitter, um, in response to my story was, wow, cool, you know, good for you going after this prevalent disease, heart disease and all its manifestations. But the single most common reaction was, whoa, Sake is leaving his academic appointments. That's a huge move. I wonder how investor world would look at that. The era of the scientific founder as CEO, I feel like, has kind of passed. I think there was a lot of investor frustration that, you know, maybe the scientist is too in love with the science to be the kind of dispassionate leader that the CEO role requires. I don't know, that struck me while reading this story. Well, maybe we have a, a back to the future situation here. And obviously, it remains to be seen just how good a CEO Dr. Katharason is. But he did manage to persuade a number of venture capital companies, including CV, the former Google Ventures, to pony up $58 million. So there's 58 million votes that say, you know, he might know what he's doing. One other thing that struck me about your story, Sharon, is, you know, the hypercholesteremia angle makes sense in the rare disease context and then, you know, expanding it from there to maybe more common forms of coronary artery disease. But once it got to the idea of editing people who might be at risk, did that seem like maybe a toe on the line of, you know, what is meant to be kind of verboten, which is using CRISPR to augment healthy people rather than treat disease? Possibly. I mean, obviously, when we say people who are at risk, that's sort of the, you know, the arcane way of saying these people are healthy. There's nothing wrong with them right now. But we think that for some combination of genetics and other factors, they might one day develop actual heart disease. Again, it's going to be uh, quite a challenge to persuade those people. Just imagine the visit to your doctor. Yes, you're fine. You know, there are a few things that we don't like so much. Maybe your cholesterol is a little higher than we would like, but you do not have heart disease. But here, we have this cool new gene therapy that we want to shove into your liver, and then you'll never have to worry about it again. Absolutely, there will be some people who say, yes, bring it on, schedule me for 8 o'clock next Tuesday. But especially since we're in an era where we have no real idea of what the long-term consequences of genome editing are going to be, that's not an obvious market yet. So as you said, Verve at first is going after patients that have this rare form of high cholesterol, right? They're not going to go immediately into patients that just have a risk for cardiovascular disease. So how quickly can they get into the clinic? Well, it's going to be years, clearly, because they don't even have, you know, good preclinical, i.e. animal data on this. There are a lot of challenges. One is, so if you're going to edit liver cells, which is where, you know, cholesterol comes from and where it's absorbed, et cetera. So that's really the organ that's a target if you're going after blood lipids and therefore heart disease. The liver turns over really, really fast. Cells die and are replaced with new ones. 
Nobody knows if the edited cells are going to preferentially survive. They don't know if the injection is going to stay in the liver or if it's going to get elsewhere in the body, which is probably something that they don't want. Interestingly, in addition to the launch of the new company, we're seeing the formation of what you might call a CRISPR ecosystem, namely cooperation agreements between, in this case, Verve, and interestingly, Verily, which of course is the Google spinoff. Verily is going to make the so-called vectors, the little molecules that deliver CRISPR, in this case, into the liver. So the business potential for CRISPR is now expanding beyond the actual therapy into the sort of support for that therapy, which I think is an interesting development. And speaking of CRISPR, Sharon, you and I are going to be conducting a webinar Tuesday, May 14th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And to sign up for that webinar, just go to Stat's website and click on the link. Yeah, and we haven't done a CRISPR webinar in more than a year, and no surprise, there have been just a ton of developments, both on the business side and the science side, so there will be a lot to talk about. Sharon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers. And as always, Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, who you think should be incarcerated next. You can do all that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.